great to see those images sometime, just to remember that Jesus is real. He is alive. He walked this earth. He breathed our air. And we want to lean into the story of Jesus. Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, writes this. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the good news. This past week, I was thinking about news and, and what makes the news and how, who decides? Who decides what becomes headline news? Who decides what makes it into the news versus the things that just pass, the things that fade away? And so I looked up some news stories, some news stories that will change your life, like this one. Bugs flying around with wings are flying bugs. <laughs> Apparently, that was important enough to make the news. How about this? Alien Bible found in people, it's worse than we think. <laughs> they worship Oprah. Exactly. Uh, move over, G.I. Joe. Jesus' action figure heals the sick. And, and it wasn't so surprising to me that, you know, somebody would latch on to a Jesus' action figure and give it healing power. What I loved about this is the picture of the turtle at the bottom, and it says, a teenage mutant ninja turtle's no match for the Messiah. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I just thought that was great. I love that headline. Um, counterproductive. <laughs> right? That doesn't seem right. Uh, yes. If you get one thing from today, <laughs> one message that's going to last, write this one down. Manure is not a health food. Um, again. <laughs> important enough to write down, apparently. I love this one because... You might as well predict something that you're pretty sure has happened already, so that's a good one. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stinking babies. That's why our population is growing. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have much to say about that. <laughs> Speaks for itself, doesn't it? Wait for it. All right. Apparently, the literacy program in Mississippi isn't that great. Uh, let's see. You can, you can be sure that that percentage is zero at that point. Go ahead. This one's great, too. Not so great that the vehicle disappeared, but it was shortly after being painted with camouflage. Which means what they're doing, obviously, is working. Uh, this one's just sad, and the picture speaks for itself. And, and pretty much, there's, there's a lot of headlines out there, especially if, if you go to the Weekly World News. There's a lot of laughable headlines out there that don't really do anything but make you laugh. But there are certain headlines, when you read it, it, it changes the way that you see the world. And if, if maybe you remember long ago, and... and or history class, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, it changed the world, especially for the people in the United States. It dragged us into a place, into a war that we weren't ready to be dragged into yet, but this also then changed the world. When there was surrender, that changed the world. This next headline, I can remember my mom and dad talking about it as I remember where I was, I remember how I got the news, I remember how my heart felt that day. It changed how you saw the world. Maybe you were super excited when you saw that 
man walked on the moon and you thought, wow, expanded horizons, isn't that great? That's so absolutely amazing. This next headline changed the world. And we remember where we were and we remember that news coming to us. Maybe it's been the news of the recession that has changed your world the most. Maybe it's because you lost a job and and you can't live the way that you lived before. But there is certain news that will change you. There is certain news that will change how you view the world. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about that news. We're beginning our series in Mark. And we're going to spend the next weeks and months just diving into that story. And we're going to go over certain things today. Today's just kind of the overview of Mark. We're going to look at a few themes that we'll dive into later. But it begins with this declaration. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the word there is gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are familiar with the word gospel because we have four of them in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And gospel literally means the news that brings joy. It it means good news. This is the news that brings joy about Jesus. Now, when Mark would have written this word gospel in this text originally, it had a certain meaning, but it didn't have a religious meaning. It had a cultural meaning. People would have understood the word gospel. It meant history-making, life-shaping news. It didn't just mean like the daily news. It didn't just mean the normal headlines. It meant history-making news. Archaeologists have discovered this, this inscription on stone somewhere in Italy that says, this is the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And it has written the story of Caesar, how he was born and how he ascended to the throne and how that changed the lives of the people there. Greek, the Greeks were fighting the Persians. And when the Greeks won, they sent evangelists to all of their towns to share the gospel. Here's what they said. We have fought for you and now you are free. That was the gospel message. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. The gospel is news about something that has been done for you that changes your status forever. This is the gospel. This is what we have. Something that has been done for you that changes your status forever. This is the foundation of our Christian faith. This news You see, there's other belief systems that would be more about advice. There's other belief systems that would tell you more about a way to live. But Christianity, the gospel, its foundation is an actual event in history that changed our status forever. You see, other religions would seek to tell you that, you know, if you just believe these certain things, you can behave your way into a better relationship with God. Christianity says this isn't based on what you do. This is based on what has been done for you. It's not exactly what you do for Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for you. That's what the good news is. That's what we begin with. We begin with this story of Jesus. But so often we get tangled up in kind of reading the story for advice. Because so many people have bought into the, this belief that, that maybe religion is just a spectrum of belief. And we've got fanatics on one side and we've got the disengaged on the other. You know, fanatics, these are the people that do the crazy things in other countries that makes the news. 
These are the people that live that really, really radical lifestyle, right? We, we feel like they overbelieve. They're almost too religious, and, and we don't want to be there. They scare us. And then the people on the other side, this kind of disengaged, we kind of wonder if these people have a pulse. Like, are you with us? Do you believe anything? How come you're not motivated to do anything? Are you sure you believe? And so we read the stories to kind of figure out, we, we want to be maybe in the middle. Actually, I think we want to be slightly above the middle. But we feel like oftentimes that it's, it's our goal in life. We don't want to be too crazy, and we don't want to be too lazy, right? This is, this is me. This is my zone. This is where I'm living. And so I'm going to search for advice that keeps me from being crazy and lazy and just right here in the middle. But what happens then is we start to kind of buy into this idea about, okay, well, I'm going to believe in this. I'm going to believe the right things. I'm going to do the right things. And then I can look down on the other people who have the wrong beliefs. And anybody that has wrong beliefs really is somebody that doesn't exactly believe like I believe. And so we feel like we're earning it by following the advice And and that might work if our Christian faith was founded on advice, but it wasn't. You see, the gospel isn't advice, it's news. The gospel is good news of what has been done for us. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. We know that in this word, in God's word to us, it gives us a way to live, right? It points us in a certain direction. It talks about discipleship. There is practical application. There are things that we need to do as a result of it. But all of those things, the way that we need to live is based on what Jesus has done for us. And so as we begin this series, I want to invite you to lean into the story, to lean into the story of Jesus in Mark, to listen to the news that brings joy, because the gospel is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about choosing to follow a savior and a king. You see, it's not about the one that tells us the things that we should do. It's about the one who is strong enough to do the things that need to be done. And when we start following him, then we start responding properly to all of these things that we're supposed to be doing. But from the outset, I just want to hear you. It's founded on this good news. Let me give you a little background to the story. Mark was written by Mark. Good job. Gold star for you. Thanks for paying attention. Mark was written by Mark. And now, the first time we read the name Mark in Scripture, aside from the headline to this gospel, is in Acts chapter 12. Peter's in prison, and he's chained up between these two guards, and he is just exhausted, and he has fallen asleep, and who knows how hard that is to sleep chained up between two guards, but he's out. And then an angel shows up and has to kind of nudge him away, hey, get up, it's time to go. And he's like, okay, and he gets up, and the chains fall off, and they're walking out, and the Bible's clear that Peter thinks that it's just all a vision. He's not exactly awake yet, but it's a pretty realistic vision, and they're walking, and the Prison doors open, they get to the gate of the city, and it opens on its own, and and they get into the streets, and then all of a sudden, Peter's by himself, and he's like, whoa, that was real. I just escaped prison. Now what? So he runs to the house of Mary, mother of Mark, and he knocks on the door, and, and this is the great story where the servant girl sees that it's Peter, and she's like, Peter's out of prison, and she runs back to tell everybody else, but she never lets him in the door. 
right? And he's outside. I'm sure, like, trying not to knock too loud. Don't draw attention to yourself. Let me in. Right? So finally, Peter goes in. And so we know that Mary and, and Mark, her son, they, they have a relationship with Peter. They're, they seem to be people that are kind of on one of the outer circles of following Jesus. Mark and Peter have this, this friendship. Even in the book of 1 Peter, Peter calls Mark his son, most likely his spiritual son. Peter's probably the one that introduced Mark to the way of Jesus. And so Mark then begins to write down either the sermons of Peter or what Peter has dictated. So Mark is the scribe, and Peter is the storyteller. And we know that because Peter is in all the stories in Mark. Anytime that we read a story in Mark, we're reading it from Peter's perspective. Now, Peter went to Rome to help lead that beginning church there, and so Mark followed him. So the book of Mark was written in Rome, somewhere between 55 and 65 or 70, and that has significance as well. It was written to Roman Christians, Roman believers, who at the time were facing tremendous persecution. Nero was the emperor of Rome at the time, and if you have any kind of mental image of Nero, you probably remember that he was the guy that supposedly fiddled while the city was burning, right? And um, there weren't really fiddles as we know them back then, but he played some musical instrument while his city's burning. He was a happy guy at that time. Now, most scholars think that he actually started the fire to make room for a palace that he wanted to build, but he blamed the Christians for the fire. And this just added to their persecution. You see, under the rule of Nero is when the Colosseum was just in full swing. And we know that Nero himself actually used Christians as human torches to light his garden. And we know that they were covered in animal skins and fed to the wild animals. 40% of the book of Mark is about conflict. It's about persecution. It's about what the people were going through, and the Roman Christians would connect with that. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 1, when, when he describes Jesus as going out into the wilderness, it says he, he went out among the wild animals, that Jesus was experiencing what you experience. There's also certain distinctions that would allow this Roman audience to understand this a little bit more. So as we're reading through this story, you'll see certain things. When, when Mark talks about a Jewish custom, he explains it, because they wouldn't know what it is otherwise. Mark doesn't talk about the Old Testament law because they wouldn't know the Old Testament law. He uses Latin. He expounds on the Aramaic. He uses the Roman way of telling time. There's just certain things that he does, and as you read through, you'll know, okay, he's writing to this Roman audience. And there's another distinctive, too. He just jumps into the story. He jumps right into the story. There is no birth story of Jesus in the book of Mark. There's no genealogy. They wouldn't have cared about the genealogy anyway. The story encapsulates three and a half years of the life of Christ. And he just jumps right in. He is far more concerned with the works of Jesus than he is with the words of Jesus. There's four parables in the book of Mark. There's 18 miracles. Over half the recorded miracles of Christ are in the book of Mark. There's very little teaching, and there's a whole lot of doing. And as you read this, you just get this sense, this stirring to action. It, it's got movement to it. It's pushing you in a direction. As you read it, you, you kind of have this, I want to do something. Like the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, I was like, I need to find some hobbits and go on an adventure, right? Because I'm like, so, I got to do something that's going to shape this world. Let's do this. First time, honestly, that I read 
uh, the Narnia books. I went to every closet in my house <laughs> and tried to push through the back of it because there's got to be something bigger out there. First time I read Hunger Games, I was like, poor kids, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, but this news, this, this news that calls for a response because the Romans believed in, in power and in action. Those were high values for them. So that's what Mark was giving them Jesus in this light. He was giving them Jack Bauer, or Jason Bourne, or Clint Eastwood, or Indiana Jones. So he was giving them action figure Jesus, okay? This is, uh, that's an actual picture from the book of Mark. Uh, we get, I don't know why he always has to wear the robe. I mean, every action shot we have of Jesus, he's wearing the robe. Anyway, we get Jesus on the move. We get action figure Jesus. We get Jesus. Mark is always using immediately and, and, and quickly, and then next he did this. And, and Jesus is showing just his power is on display in the book of Mark. But you have to understand, in all of that action and in all of that power, it's very clear that Jesus came to use that to serve. You see, the key verse in the book of Mark is found in chapter 10. It's on page 1594 in the Pew Bible there, if you want to turn there. Mark 10, 45 is the key verse, and I just want to read starting at verse 42. His disciples had kind of been arguing with each other like they were prone to do, and a couple of them had kind of asked Jesus, you know, hey, can you kind of promote us? Can we get a little promotion? We get extra stripe on our sleeve or the corner office, and he's like, it's not going to work that way. Um, so he, he calls them together. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And they would have said, yeah, we, we've, we've lived in a system of oppression by foreign leaders. And, and you know that the Roman Christians who were reading this as well, they would have said, that's exactly right, because Nero is our leader, and, and Nero is associated with tyranny and extravagance and assassinations. You know, he had his own mom assassinated when he thought she was going to try and take over the throne with another family member, and, and anybody that was related to him, he had them assassinated. Anybody that had a claim to the throne, and he was obsessed with power and popularity at the sake of his people. And we know that there's leaders like that all through history who are far more concerned with their power and their palace more than their people. And they've assassinated people in people groups. And rulers oftentimes use their power for their own benefit. Jesus points that out, and they would have understood that. Verse 43, though, says, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus isn't a Roman emperor who's coming to use his power for his own fame. He's using his power to serve. He's giving sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. He's calming the seas. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. The most high, the most powerful, the most deserving of our praise came to serve and to give his life. That's good news. That's a great headline. That's foundational. I have to be honest, this past week, 
this truth just hit me again. As I was reading and I was studying, I just couldn't believe. I, I kept trying to think of an illustration that would, that would match from our times, but I couldn't think of anything because nobody had more power and nobody stooped lower than Jesus. And he did that to serve me and he did that to rescue me and I just couldn't believe it. And I kept praying, Spirit, don't let that truth go away from me. We need to understand what Jesus did for us. That's what stirs us. That's what stirs us into this, okay, how, how do I live for you? How do I live this? Jesus, you truly are the Messiah. That's, that's what Mark is writing to show them. He's writing to show them that this servant is the Messiah. That's why he says in verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the news. Jesus, he's the Messiah. The book of Mark breaks down. It has 16 chapters. It's kind of half and half. It's like a 1 to 8 and a 9 to 16. And and the hinge verse in the middle of this is Peter's declaration of, of Christ, of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus asked them, well, who do, who do other people say that I am? And they answered him. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said this, you are the Messiah. So about halfway through the book, we have his disciples making this declaration. They're figuring it out as they go. Close to the end of this book, chapter 15, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and there was a Roman officer standing facing him. The Roman officer says this, this man truly was the Son of God, that we have this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, that he's the anointed one. It's laid out, chapter one, verse one. Halfway through, we have his close followers. All right, I'm I'm latching on to this truth. I'm getting it. At the end, it's even the Romans. Even a Roman looked up and said, you know what? Surely that is God's son. Truly, that's the Messiah. That's the picture of Jesus that we see as we go through this book from beginning to end. Now, it does end uniquely. The Gospel of Mark ends uniquely. If you turn over to Mark chapter 16, it's the last chapter, and when Mark wrote this Gospel, he ended his Gospel at verse 8. Now, for those of you astute enough to look down and do the math, your Bible probably ends at verse 20. There's a whole section that's kind of added on, right? You see, when Mark wrote it, he ended it this way. Verse 8, the women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Roll the credits. Right? That's like, whoa. We don't end our stories that way. And there's this little tag on that says, well, they reported it to Peter, and then Jesus sent them out uh, with the message of salvation, amen. Amen. And around the second century, the church fathers were like, we can't wrap up the story that way. So verses 9 to 20 were added. Now, there's nothing non-biblical about verses 9 to 20. I don't want you to hear that because they were taken probably from the other gospel accounts. Mark was the first to be written, and the other ones would have been written at this time, and they took that, and they, they created the nice bow on the package. But when Mark wrote it, he ended it with... The women fleeing the tomb, trembling and bewildered. There's fear, there's confusion, there's amazement. Why, why would you end it that way? Maybe that's exactly how the Roman Christians were feeling. 
Maybe that's exactly how the storyteller and the scribe experienced life. Maybe for Mark and Peter, there was fear, confusion, and amazement. And oftentimes, honestly, there was failure. As we read through this, we're going to see those that followed Christ failed. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of Mark that seems counterproductive. The, to- the story is told of, of one of the church's greatest leaders who failed quite a bit and even publicly denied the Messiah. I mean, who would write a book to start a movement and place one of its greatest leaders in such a poor light unless weakness is an important part of the story? Unless that weakness is an important part of the story, their weakness and their failures. Mark, who was the scribe who wrote down what Peter said, he had a life that was in a lot of ways defined by failure. In Acts chapter 12, we read of Paul and Barnabas going on their first missionary journey, and they take Mark with them. And you can just get this picture of Mark, who's just so excited. Yes, road trip. We're going on a missionary journey. I get to boat. I get to eat foreign food. It's going to be awesome, right? He's going on a journey with Paul and Barnabas. So great. Chapter 13 of Acts has Mark leaving. Mark didn't make it. We don't know if, if he was homesick. We don't know if he was physically sick. We don't know if he was scared. We don't know what the reason. All we know is that he left. He bailed. I mean, can you imagine Paul and Barnabas get back and, you know, it's mission service and they're showing slides, you know. (laughs) This is ad country. Can you believe we ate that? Mark's in the crowd. He's like, ooh, I was almost there. Acts chapter 15 has Paul and Barnabas going out again and And Barnabas is like, well, let's bring along Mark. And Paul's like, no. As a matter of fact, they argued so strongly that they split ways at that point in time. Paul was that firm on, I'm not taking that kid. And I don't know if Mark was sitting there thinking to himself, wow, Paul goes to all the world talking about the forgiveness of Jesus. He's not taking me. Loser. (laughs) I don't know. There was some failure in his world. There's an interesting kind of little side in, in Mark chapter 14, just two verses when, when Christ was arrested and all the disciples fled. There's two verses about this guy that was kind of watching at a dis- distance, and he was wearing this shirt, and uh, some people tried to grab onto him, and he kind of wriggled out of his shirt, and he, it says he ran away naked. Most scholars believe that was Mark, because you wouldn't know that story unless you lived that story, that there was failure there. We know with Peter there was failure as well. Peter was the storyteller for this, and there's more about Peter's failure in the Gospel of Mark than the other three combined. We know that Peter was like a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. That's just kind of how he operated. Fire before you aim. You know he cut off the guy's ear, and he was kind of missed speaking, and then he denied Christ publicly. And we know that it's not just those guys in the Bible. We know that Paul, Moses, they were murderers. We know David had his issues. We know Abraham gave his wife away twice. We know Jacob was a deceiver. We know that there's all kinds of failures in Scripture, but I want to tell you, and and we'll see as we read this, your failure doesn't disqualify you. Your failure is not final. 
And I know immediately when somebody says that, we put up walls, but you don't know what I've done, or you don't know how long that that has been going on in my world. Or those are Bible people, and they're in the Bible for a reason, so that we could have that book, and we could tell those stories, but that's not my story. Somehow we think we're disqualified when we fail. I ran track in high school. Uh, I did short distances. I ran the 100, 200, and the 4x4 relay, which means in an entire track meet, I would run just a couple hundred yards and pretend like I was tired because <laughs> I had breaks in between. You know, whoa, I just finished that 200. Woo! First track meet I ever went to, uh, there was an open spot on the 400. And so the coach was like, you should run it. You should try it. I'd never trained for it. But the 400 is just one lap around the track. And basically the advice I was given is you just sprint until your lungs explode. You go. So I line up, right? I'm in the block, and the gun sounds, and I take off, and I am flying. I am running this thing like the 100-yard dash. And as I round that first corner, I can hear people on the infield say, that guy's fast, right? As I got past him, and I'm like, yes, I am. Now, (laughs) what I didn't hear was probably their after statement, there's no way he's going to make it to the finish line. I run the 100, I'm doing great. I come around, I'm, I'm at 200, then I hit that corner, that last corner, and I just start dying. I can't breathe, I feel like my lungs have exploded, I feel like I'm dragging my legs along with me. My vision literally is just blurry. Just like, I can't see anything. I don't know if it's sweat, I don't know if I'm crying, I don't know what it is, my body's shutting down, people. And this is the point where other people start passing me. And I'm coming around the corner and I'm just dying, and I get, Closer to the finish line, and I can hear the guy at the end saying, first, second, third, and he gets to me, and he goes, DQ'd. I'm like, I worked so hard. I come around disqualified. You see, I was coming around that corner, and in my pain, I might have drifted a lane (laughs) or two because I wanted to get to that finish line. Disqualified. And you know what disqualified means, right? It means you don't advance. There's, there's no quarterfinals, there's no semifinals, there's no finals for you. It means basically you can sit in the stands. And I think that's how we feel about our failures. I think sometimes we feel like, oh, my Christian faith, it's like a track meet, and, and I've drifted, I, I've crossed the line, I'm disqualified. And basically that means then I'll just sit on the side. That's how we see failure. We see failure, we over-exaggerate it. We put too much on it. I was voted off the island. Failure just kind of relegates us to spectator mode. We've been downgraded. We've been demoted. We've been devalued. And you know what? If you sit in the stands long enough, you just get bored and leave. We feel like that failure is final. Can you imagine if Mark was just like, ah, I'm done. I'm done. Who writes the book? Can you imagine if if Peter was like, I denied, there's no way. There's no way, I'm out. The disciples are down to 10 now. Judas first, me next. Your failure is not final. Your failure does not disqualify you. If only perfect people could serve in the church, could be servants for Jesus, it would never happen. Raise your hand if you're perfect. All right, nobody brave enough. Nobody. Your failure isn't final. You see, the headline news for us is that Jesus 
did the work for us. The headline news for us is that Jesus is the Messiah, and he came to serve, and he came to give his life, and because of that headline news, then we can get back in the race. Because of that headline news, we can live it. It's this call, it's this stirring to action to follow hard after Jesus and his example. 